Welcome to the Danish National Biobank podcast. We've been gone for quite a while due to the coronavirus pandemic. We return now, however, to give you this special series. With speaks from our co-hosted symposium, Scaling Omics Approaches to Population Size. Here is Michael Christensen from Stadensim Institute and the University of Copenhagen. On the topic, the Danish contribution to psychiatry through massive unbiased sample collections. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, and um, nice to see most of you again from uh, from the uh, from the symposium. I am uh, to talk about the Danish contribution to psychiatry uh, through massive unbiased sample collections. And as you'll understand it, that's a colossal topic. So uh, I'll sort of try to explain why we are so uniquely suited to attack problems that are, have a polygenetic and multifactorial uh, and uh, etiology with a major sort of input from social determinants of disease, and then show you a couple of, uh, of examples. Um, the, I want to sort of get back to what we talk, have pro- talked about previously, the so-called Danish model, where we collect, are able to combine in research for research purposes, public registries, we can combine the civil registration system, we can combine uh, Danish national patient registry, we can get diagnosis coupled with, in, with uh, identity, with living place. We can uh, get from Danish medical birth registry, we can get information about where people, how, the, how people were, were born. We can get uh, information about how the, what they were vaccinated against. We have a lot of demographic registries and prescription registries and many more. And those registries can be, within this current level of governance, be combined with biological samples that are stored in uh, various biobanks. And from my point of view, the focus is on the Danish National Biobank. And if we combine these, or sorry, if you look at the registries, they give us a unique opportunity to go for social determinants of disease. The biological samples give us an, a unique opportunity to go and look for biomarkers and also for etiology, molecular etiology of diseases. And together, through a sort of highly developed governance system that's based on the kind of trust we have in in, uh, Denmark to government and and regulatory bodies, we're able to do a lot of unbiased association studies, and we're also able to sort of study the whole life stories. We do not have sort of random selections of patients that were were possible, who had to, were able to pay for a certain time and then couldn't, et cetera, et cetera. We're able to sort of follow the disease, both in its social history and its uh, its uh, medical history. And uh, then let's see, what do we know? How do we use these registers? Yeah. The registers by themselves contain a lot of information in Denmark because you cannot live here without being in a register. You know, you, you have to have a CPR number to get any form of, of public service and you are, uh, that means that all your contacts with the hospital system, all contacts with primary care, etc., is registered. And uh, that was used by a group of, uh, headed by, by a group of, um, of uh, researchers from Aarhus who uh, tried to find out how much, wh- what is actually the incident rate and lifetime risk for treated me- mental disorders in Denmark. 
And, you know, they were able, due to the quality of our registries, to get a uh, to get in total 59.5 million person years. And that's sort of a, imagine how much that is in, in lives. And uh, that gives us a colossal sort of uh, uh, knowledge on how, uh, how many diseases we have. And it also uh, gives us a possibility through the use of the registries to go uh, through which diagnosis they have and uh, when they had it. And uh, you can also follow up on where they lived when they had it, etc., etc. This is just sort of registries before we get any sort of information of the wet or tissue type nature. And it was concluded that around 30 to 40 percent of Danes have a first treatment of, in a psychiatric setting for any mental disorder. And so the conclusion of the registry studies is that psychiatric disease is a major public health problem. And this is well docu documented here. And it was documented through down to the individual uh, diagnostic codes. And you can see here any psychiatric dis disorder, that was what we talked about before, 32 to 37%, lifetime risk, and then sort of broken down in different diagnoses. Of course, you have the problem when you're dealing with psychiatric diseases and when you look through these registries that many patients occur or occur several times with different diagnoses because it takes some time to establish the final diagnosis and some of them develop symptomatically uh, over time. But still, this gives us a very good overview on what kind of diseases have we got and uh, so where should we sort of focus our our treatment effort and which groups should we possibly take a, an extra look at in a public health uh, connection. So this is just what we can get from our registries. This is just going in and looking at, uh, at uh, the data we have, uh, we have all stored and we have a governance that enables us to do so without uh, extremely lengthy approval procedures. And one of the things that came out of that uh, beautiful study was that it was possible to sort of get an idea of when do these diseases become symptomatic? When do they sort of lead to the first uh, admission? And you can see here, sort of as expected, but not proven before that, we have the, uh, we have autism, uh, uh, the autistic dis disease spectrum and the ADHD very early in, uh, in life, you know, the childhood psychiatry. Then we have the schizophrenics in, uh, in uh, late adolescence, and we have the mood disorders, but a much broader, broader spectrum, but also see the peak in, in the aged patients that we, that we know is from other studies, is, knows there. So basically, we get a lot out of register data. But actually, if we look at the model we have, then we can say the strength of it and the way it's really, really uh, sort of um, informative is that we are able to follow a person basically from conception, nearly conception, through birth, through childhood, through the whole life until death. And all the black stars here represent registrations in the biobank or samples present in the biobank. And the black cloud over there with social determinants of disease is what we can get, for instance, from registries. You know, we can be able to see where did you live, uh, what kind of job did you have, uh, what was the, what was your, how much did you attain educationally, and and so on. So we, we actually have because we cover so many things, we cover nearly all of them. We have a fantastic uh, possibility of creating the full holistic picture of uh, of psychiatric disease. 
So I think it's very important to realize that uh, biobanking is far more than just uh, a thousand tissue samples taken under certain conditions. Uh, in order really to be informative about disease, you need a particularly mental disease, you need to look into the whole picture. And this is just sort of to show you that we need to take into account social determinants or risk factors of psychiatric disease when we're studying that. And I have, uh, I've lived through a time where I studied cardiovascular uh, genetics and genetics and uh, uh, frequently all this social, these social determinants were completely unknown. You collected a bunch of pa patients with a certain diagnosis then you uh, screened or sequenced their DNA, initially a gene, later on more than a gene, now the genome, and looked for associations. But in very few cases did we actually go in and look at uh, social determinants. From In my own field, with, the, with sudden cardiac death as a major uh, um, symptom, that's absolutely grotesque because we know that there is a, a gradient in, uh, in, uh, in social uh, demographics or uh, socioeconomic factors that uh, predispose or is associated with, uh, with death. So we need to get this in. And that goes obviously for all the psychiatric diseases. And then you could say, well, what, what, is, this really, is, is this really important? And I just want to sort of refer you to something that is about 10 years old. The finding, uh, or sort of the really efficient finding and propagation of the knowledge of association, of the concept of association between income inequality in rich countries and percentage of mental disease. And you can see here, Denmark is not on it, but you can see going from Japan, who has a very low income inequality, to the US, who has a very high, you can see that there is a clearly increasing uh, percentage of um, patients with any uh, uh, mental disease. And it's not just sort of the very rich that have something and the very poor that have something else, uh, or the very sort of very, very unequal societies that are characterized by more psychiatric disease. It actually follows nicely in a linear fashion. So it is a factor that we need to take into account in most of uh, our studies. So the social democratic factors uh, should be of great interest to us. This phenomenon has been associated with the anxiety you are believed to be able to sometimes develop if you do not feel that you are sort of socially fitting to the norm, which seems to be a major problem for, for humans, but we don't really know why. But even though we don't know why, we still need to sort of take it into account. The same relation is seen from for drug use. Index of drug use is very much dependent on the income inequality in the society that you that you study. And then you could say, okay, uh, income inequality isn't that sort of a minor problem in rich countries? No, it's actually an increasing problem. This is the UK, where you can see that from 1970 and onwards, we've had a major increase in income inequality. And that actually sort of time-wise coincides with some of the epidemics of, of drug use and obesity, etc. So uh, at least from sort of outside point of views, not really going into the detailed study, you could say that, that this is probably a factor that we really need to take into account. So it is important to know people's social background when we put them into association studies of whatever kind. The major hit sort of in Denmark or the major thing that we have in Denmark apart from our well-ordered registries and the governance is that we have dry blood spots of all Danes born at least after 1980 and they're stored and they're available for research if you get 
sort of permission to do so through a governance system. And uh, I never sort of get tired of talking about dry blood spots because you can actually, they are a phenomenal resource for, uh, for research. Uh, you can basically do anything on them. You know, you can extract DNA, you can extract RNA, you can look for uh, uh, genomes of disease-causing uh, disease organisms, you can measure proteins, you can measure a lot of different hormones, uh, you can uh, um, quantitate small molecules meaningfully, uh, and uh, so, so you basically have a, a source that says a lot about the child within three days after birth. And then this information in Denmark is easily linked to large clinical and socioeconomic databases and uh, sort of to say what we have got. We've got a public health infrastructure that makes this possible. I once checked like 12, 15 years ago, how many do we actually miss if we take a local area? And it turns out that it was less than 0.01%. You know, it's very rare that people who should be in this PKU databank isn't there because it's so important to get to have a, a congenital disease uh, diagnosed. Then we are getting, a, it's an evolving issue, but we're getting a research governance structure, and it seems to be funded on trust. You know, the Danish society is like other Scandinavian countries characterized by a high level of trust in regulatory bodies and, and the political system. So it's possible for us to establish a system that's under democratic control and leans towards good stewardship. You know, we are allowed to study things if it sort of serves a reasonable purpose, and we treat the people who are inadvertently used in these study, studies in a decent manner that has been checked by the, by the ethical uh, committees. So this is a resource you should never forget if you're working with, uh, with research in, uh, in Denmark. And people didn't forget it. There was a group of five people who established what's called the ISAC study. It's a big, unbiased biobank that contains all psychiatric patients diagnosed uh, between 1981 and 2005, and with controls also, and it was taken out of a population of newborns from, uh, that comprised nearly 1.5 million persons. So, and it was possible from this biobank, from the data here, to extract DNA. More than 90% of the DNA samples could be, uh, could be extracted, and a number of biomarkers has been measured on these samples, methylation profiles, metabolome profiles, vitamins, inflammatory markers, uh, etc., have been mentioned there. And that goes sort of generally well. You may have problems with sort of establishing what's normal and what's not, but generally it goes well. And then, of course, it can be linked to longitudinal information on health, prescribed medicine, social and economic information. So we get this extra layer of social determinants of, of disease on top of it. This has been a fantastic success, and there are many hundred papers that have come out of this work, and I think suggest you go in and look at them at uh, the website isaacau.dk, and uh, you'll see that this study has contributed to finding new genes involved in psychiatric disease and uh, all sorts of, uh, of examinations, uh, all sorts of studies related to, to, uh, to psychiatric disease. So it's a very, uh, very important resource. And you could say that the existence of this biobank is a major Danish contribution to, uh, to psychiatric research. Many of us would like to see it used for other diseases also, but here we sort of end into the restraints that are uh, on top of, that are sort of part of, of, of governance. So we have this one, and uh, I'll show you how you can actually use it. 
And um, <coughs> psychiatric patients have a much reduced life expectancy, around 15 years on average. And people said, oh, that's because they kill themselves, you know, when you sort of, there's a high suicide rate. But that's not true. Most of the deaths in these groups are actually caused by the same things as the rest of us, obesity, cardiovascular disease, etc. But there is a sort of 10 to 12% among schizophrenics in smaller studies. Again, the problem, small studies, how biased are they? So it's all a bit doubtful what the size of the problem. But <laughs> it... Uh, with the development of what I've been interested in, the understanding of molecular genetic cardiovascular diseases, it became apparent that there were actually genetic diseases that could cause sudden death. And at the same time, these genetic diseases in ion channels, etc., was associated with drug-induced prolongation of, the, of um, uh, the QT interval on the ECG. So the question arose and is still very hotly debated do we, because psychiatric, psychotropic drops, drugs are known to influence these ion channels, and in a large number of anecdotal evidence, it's apparent that uh, they do seem to be associated with sudden death and arrhythmia. So the question could be stated, do we poison patients through the treatment we give them? And this has been subject of, as I showed you, a... Uh, a study by the Danish Society of Cardiology as far back as in 2011, but due to insufficient information, it's in the last few years it has been discussed again. Do, is it possible that some patients simply cannot take these drugs because they, due to genetic disposition, develops a, a sudden death? And this is not a small problem for the psychiatric drugs. You can see out here at the end, at the, in the last column, that most of the uh, most of the red most of the drugs here are labeled red, which means that this is a problem. If they are very very red, then it's a major problem. And uh, but a lot of these drugs are labeled as risk giving with respect to developing cardiac arrhythmia. And then you can say, okay, that, then you just know it. So if you, if you have a problem, you can just deal with it. But this is complicated by the fact that you also have the problem with psychiatric patients, that it's not all of them that actually have the correct treatment. So you need to, you are there dependent in many cases on selecting a specific drug that works for them. And that means if that drug then is associated with a high risk, sometimes you see that they're not given that drug because you're afraid of cardiovascular uh, problems. So... We know a lot about based on disease-based biobanking. This is what the kind of patients we got over a 15-year period with this disease, and we were able to identify some 60, 70 mutations in families. So we know the genetic disease. But people then discovered or found out that there are a number of uh, genetic variants that actually dispose to uh, cardiac arrhythmia if you'd get these kind of drugs. And it was possible to identify 61 SNPs that uh, contribute to this. And in a few years ago, it was established that uh, there was probably, using those 61 SNPs, it was probably possible to identify patients that would have a problem. And that is, for the reason I mentioned before, a problem. Because if you say to people, you cannot have the drug that works on you because we're afraid you might get sudden cardiac death, uh, this, this should really be evidence-based. So we use this to say, okay, Let's take the genetic risk scores of these patients and then apply it to the ISIC psychiatric patients. Is it associated? If you have a high score, if you score high on the risk for genetic arrhythmia, do you have a problem with your treatment? And lo and behold, nothing of the kind. The people who have a very high score down here, the yellow one, this is survival, actually seems to be among the ones that survive the best. Whereas the ones that have sort of a middle level here, 
They are the ones that survive uh, the poorest. So this is an example of using a large comprehensive database to sort of uh, remove a problem that is that could otherwise, through not evidence-based sort of referencing or or use, be of significant detrimental effect for psychiatric patients by influencing their their uh, treatment choice. Another thing you can get out of these databases, and this is just one of them, go and look at the website, it's fantastic. You can see that uh, there is a very considerable overlap lap between the genetic structure of psychiatric diseases, of different the psychiatric diseases here, the more blue or dark, the more uh, close the genetic association is. So it's probably correct to start thinking of psychiatric disease as a continuum rather than separate, easily defined uh, diseases. And that's a major finding. And of course, that again hangs on the fact that you actually have all the patients with the disease to study. There's even an association with some neurological phenotypes, and that has actually now spiraled some of us into believing that neurological disease and psychiatric disease might just be two sort of sides of the same coin. You also have an association with comorbidity. You can study that. We studied it in the association between hydrocephalus and uh, autism, and it turns out that hydrocephalus is a strong risk factor for, for autism, something that had only been anecdotally dealt with previously. But now we have the whole population. We can go in and say, okay, this is a problem we need to think about, that the risk is six times higher for patients with uh, atypical autism to have uh, hydrocephalus. Anxiety. You know, people are afraid of something. We can study that in the various uh, ways, and it, it presents itself in different ways. But I just want to use a study, a very recent study that we performed where we were able to show that preterm births decreased dramatically during the COVID-19 lockdown, the month where we really had a, a strict lockdown, and we were able to see a reduction in preterm, extreme preterm birth of 90%. And people have previously, actually, when I went through the literature, this was a very surprising finding. And now we can see that it sticks. We're getting more comprehensive data. We're actually mining the sources that I showed you were available. But the, uh, the interesting thing about this study is that when you use the PKU biobank, you actually have the data within three days after birth because that's the time when the patient has to sort of have the sample placed in the, um, in the biobank. So the, the associated information is easily harvested, including gestational age at birth. And the other thing is that uh, it, this now enables us to study why does this happen. And there are actually, if you go back 50, 60 years and look at social intervention studies in various populations, you can see that some of the side effects of social interventions, not sought for, but some of these studies actually report a dramatic decrease in preterm birth when they try to improve social conditions for, or social conditions or support structures, etc., for, for pregnant women. So now we're going to use these data and we have been able to use a biobank, a national, nationwide covering biobank, to study a phenomenon that occurred in March and we're now in November. And I think that that's something you should realize that we might be able to use this also for monitoring. And then my final conclusion. 
I think that it's really important uh, to realize that research is greatly, research in psychiatry is greatly supported by access to large un, uh, unbiased biobanks, and that the Danish National Biobank is an extremely good example of that through its governance structure. You can clarify etiology, you can look into, you get a lot of genetic data because we can get that from the PKU cards. You can actually, I think, also approach, which is very getting high on the political agenda now, inequality because we have the whole population in the biobank. It's not so that we cannot deal with a certain group of uh, psychiatric diseased patients because they are simply too sick to approve of being part of, of a scientific study. We can get them all, and through that we can actually get uh, sort of improve equality. We can also get prognostic information, again, because we get everybody, we don't get the bias. We can study comorbidity, again, because we get everybody. And uh, I think that uh, you should be, as we showed with the QT prolonging drug exposure, you should use a biobank to, to try to get answers to your questions before you translate sort of halfway anecdotal or um, case control studies and small numbers of patients into clinical practice. And then uh, I want to point out that we, there's so much we don't know. Jon just talked about a bit, to give an example of this. There's so much we don't know. And I think it's really important that we start realizing that and start getting all the data together we can, including social data and biological data. And finally, I just want to say that in Denmark, we are uniquely well suited because we have a high level of trust. And if we continue to do that, we should be able to, using transparency and democratic control, we should be able to turn that trust into an exceptional public health in Denmark. And then I think, just as a little sort of proviso, I think we should be a bit careful about how we weigh off autonomy to, of the single person participating in biobanking versus the stewardship of the whole society, of the whole public health uh, area. I think we need to say that it's not always extremely important that we respect autonomy to an extreme degree. We have to sort of say that there are areas of public health where that's so important that we need to ask people and need to get political permission to uh, use information, even though it may sometimes be personal information for, for people. Of course, respecting all sorts of privacy, etc. But uh, but that's uh, I think we need to look carefully into where that that um, that balance is, is, is placed. And then a number of people, the Isaac group, fantastic people, uh, and um, people from SSI and collaborators, etc. I have to thank them. And also the Lundbeck Foundation, the Nordic Foundation. We've done a number of studies. I don't have time to mention all of them here. Thank you very much.